Uh, how familiar are you with the name Anton LaVey? Ring a bell or is it unfamiliar to you? Anton LaVey. I, I kind of remember the first time I heard it. I was uh, in high school and attending a non-denominational Bible study sponsored by a group called Young Life. I always look forward to the, the Bible study. It kind of added some depth to my, my understanding at that time in my life of what it means to, to actually follow God's plan for our life. What, what I remember studying was a section of the Gospels that was focused on the spiritual warfare that goes on in our lives when we move from, from kind of that, that place of superficial faith to actually being moved by the Spirit towards committing our, our whole being into God's hands and kingdom. And we were discussing this. We were just talking about what that actually looks like in our, in our lives, how easy it is to just get caught up and going through motions. And then what happens when you, you kind of get to that place of saying, you know what, God, I, I want you to take all of me. I don't want to play church anymore. I want to be church. We were talking about this warfare and somebody in the group, I remember this, said, Hey, you talk about warfare. He says, do you know there's even a church dedicated to Satan? There's actually a satanic Bible. This was back in the 1970s, and I'd never heard of such a thing. I remember throwing on the brakes, like just put the brakes on and asking the question, what, what are you talking about? And that's when his name was mentioned, Anton LaVey. If you've never heard of him, let me just tell you that's true. Anton LaVey is both the author of the Satanic Bible and the founder of the Church of Satan. Yes, it's, a, it's actually a real thing. If you've never heard of it, I'm, I'm actually not surprised. But I'll tell you this, uh, the LaVey is long gone from this earth. He died in 1997. His church still lives on and in some ways is becoming more and more mainstream in our world today as evidenced at this year's 65th Grammy Award celebration. Did you see it? So the, the award show is always challenging for me. Uh, I'm so out of touch with today's performers and artists, but I'm not so out of touch as to not notice that this year's awards featured a performance done by a proclaimed queer, Sam Smith, and his transgendered partner, Kim Petras, both dressed in satanic outfits. The title of their performance and their album, Unholy. If, you, if you've never listened to the lyrics of the song Unholy, um, you should know this. It's, it, is, it is what its name says. It's unholy. It's also the embodiment of what the Church of Satan believes and teaches. In his 1974 biography of LeVay, author Burton Wolf says, the church intentionally, the satanic church intentionally, takes its name from the Hebrew form of the name Satan that literally translates or means the one who accuses or opposes. So when LeVay established the Church of Satan, he, he wrote a Bible for, for his church, and opposition is what he had on his mind. LeVay saw the Abrahamic religions of Christianity and Judaism as being restrictive towards our natural instincts, towards the drives that live inside of people. His goal in founding the Church of Satan was to oppose, oppose the church, to release people from the restrictions of religion. 
Satanism, much like the lyrics of Smith's song, wants to throw off the restrictions of religion, Christianity, Judaism, any religion, and encourage people instead to take hold of their base instincts as good. What do you have living inside you that you really, you really want? No matter what it is, it's good. It encourages people to follow their desires rather than repress them through guilt or fear. Satanism believes in you being you to the fullest extent possible under the law. One thing Satanism, or the Satanic Bible for that matter, does not believe in, however, is the actual existence of a supernatural being named Satan. That kind of blows me away. The Church of Satan does not believe in Satan. Well, guess what? I, for one, do. And, and not only do I believe he exists, but I believe he has his hands on the throat of the Church of Satan and on a lot of people in our world today. After all, how is it even possible that people dressed up as the devil, singing a song titled Unholy, actually win a Grammy Award and are featured on national television? It brings me to our topic today. In our podcast today, I want to take you to a little hill in the Levant section of Israel. That is, to a little hill called Har or Tel Megiddo. So does that sound a little bit familiar to you? Well, allow me to say it just a little bit differently. So I want, I want to take you today to a place called Armageddon. And right now, there ought to be a little bell going off inside of your head, like ding, 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 Armageddon. Yes, that sounds familiar. Isn't Armageddon the place where the world ends? Hang on, we'll get there. Here's why I say that. I really, I really want to do three things today. First, I want to locate Armageddon for you, both physically, as a place, and historically. And then secondly, I want to move from the physical, historical place of Armageddon to the spiritual place of Armageddon. As, as much as it is a physical place, it also stands, speaking spiritually, as a symbol for something greater. I believe that the book of Daniel helps us see that. So I want to answer the question, what spiritual reality is represented by Armageddon? And finally, I want to ask a question, what, what does it have to do with you and me? What does it mean for us? Why does the Bible want me to be aware of Armageddon? So as we turn to the topic of Armageddon, I have to tell you, there's really no lack of books, films, videos, plays uh, that have in one way or another sought to provide people with a picture of what, of what Armageddon is. If you remember with me, the 1998 film Armageddon sent Ben Affleck, Billy Bob Thornton, and Bruce Willis into space in an effort to stop a massive asteroid from ending the life of planet Earth. Google End Time Films and you'll see that there's a list as long as a person's arm of movies featuring all kinds of ways Armageddon might take place, the world might end, some secular and some spiritual. The list of books featuring Armageddon is equally as long. Arthur Tim LaHaye is prolific on the subject, including his 2003 book, Armageddon, The Cosmic Battle of the Ages. William Forstchen's novel, One Second After, depicts the earth following the explosion of a nuclear bomb. That's, that's his interpretation of Armageddon. Nuclear bomb goes off and the world begins to end. And then there's Daniel Wilson's book, Robopocalypse, featuring the earth's demise at the hands of AI robots. When he wrote that book, I think people thought, 
what in the world today? AI seems to be knocking on our doorsteps. So I guess one could say plainly that over the course of time, Armageddon has really captured people's imaginations. But let's move beyond imagination. What, what really is Armageddon? So I'll just start with a fact that first and foremost, it's a place. And it's a place with a significant history. Should you or I want to visit Armageddon today, we would board an airplane. We would fly to Israel. We're at the northern end of the Wadi Ara defile. We would find a tell. Now, if you're not familiar with the word, a tell in the Hebrew language is a hill. As a har, Armageddon is a mountain or a mount. And, and that's what we'd find. Well, we might expect Armageddon to be a big place, a big mountain or a big hill, given its role in film and literature. It's actually not. Go there, and what you'll find are ruins uncovered over the years during which three separate excavations have taken place. There are parts of it that are kind of interesting to look at, including a temple on site. But it's really not all that large an area. You see, what, what makes Armageddon significant is not its size but rather its strategic location. Again, were we able to, to get up on top of the tell or hill uh, called Armageddon, we, we would find that this key piece of land acts as a pass through the Carmel Ridge. So here, here's the way I think about it. At the height of its glory, Armageddon, or Armageddon acted a little bit like the Panama Canal does today. If you wanted to move goods from east to west, you had to go through this particular property. To put it into perspective, whoever owned this property owned one of the most significant trade routes on planet Earth. Additionally, there's one other feature that made this property significant, its height. Again, Armageddon is not a huge mountain, but it does look down into the Jezreel Valley. Its height gives it a strategic advantage in times of battle. By placing one's troops atop the hill of Armageddon, Israel held an important advantage over its enemies. So it's these two facts that give Armageddon its spiritual or symbolic importance. As the Bible begins to point symbolically to Armageddon as the last battleground in time, as God's enemies seek to rise up against him one last time before the world comes to an end. I believe this is where we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 to 45. I want to read these verses, but before I do, let's remember where we are within the narrative scope of the book of Daniel. First, remember where we are in the story of Daniel. I'm going to say this simply. By the time we get to Daniel 11, Daniel is an old man. He's getting ready to die. As he looks back at his life, he has some tremendous things to celebrate. He's watched the hand of God do so much. From the interpretation of dreams to the establishment of Daniel as advisor to pagan kings of both Babylon and Persia, Daniel's seen God's hand at work in his life. But there's one regret that Daniel has been holding on to. Remember what it is? It's the question. It's the question of Israel's return to Jerusalem. It's been 70 years. And as Daniel prepares to die, his question for God is, are we ever going to make it back home? Will Israel ever return to Israel? Now, I, I always think of this. God, God didn't have to answer Daniel, but he does. In his grace, 
what happens in chapter 11 is meant to be an immediate blessing to Daniel, but it's also meant to be a greater blessing to those who would come after him, after he dies and goes home, all the way up to you and I today. Remember why I say that. In Daniel 11, Jesus, in a pre-incarnate state, appears to Daniel and begins to show him all that is getting ready to happen in history. He's saying, Daniel, there's going to be a rising up and a falling of many nations, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, even Rome, through all of it. Through the rising and falling, what Jesus wants Daniel to know most is this. Daniel, I am fully in charge. Nothing will happen on the face of earth apart from my authorization. This is Jesus' earth. Daniel, don't forget that. Readers of Daniel never lose sight of that. That said, Jesus' ownership, we discover, does not go without contest. By who? By God's and our greatest enemy, Lucifer, and his army of fallen angels. What God wants us to know as we read this book is the fact that there's a battle going on for the souls of mankind. And, and over the last few weeks, we've, we've looked at that battle, in particular through the character, or characters, I should say, of what the Bible calls Antichrist. If you've missed the last few podcasts, I think there's five altogether. I'll encourage you to go back and listen to them because what, what Jesus is showing us is, is important. He's showing us that there are antichrists at work in this world right now. They've been at work since the time of John who will seek to separate men from the word and from Jesus. I've shared with you my conviction that if you will pay attention to the newspapers today, to, to newscasts today, to, to global events, you'll see exactly what Jesus points Daniel and the readers of Daniel to. Antichrists, they're at work. They're not monsters. They're not the stuff of Hollywood. They're leaders. Leaders within both political and religious spheres. And there will come a last one. One that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. So people will ask me, Pastor Luke, do you think we're there yet? Are we living in the period during which we can expect the last Antichrist, the Antichrist, to rise up? I always point people back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. Without question, this chapter tells us that two signs mark the beginning of the end. One, apostasy, the falling away from the foundation upon which one once stood, apostasis, away from are standing. I think this is happening before our, our very eyes in America right now. I really believe that, that we in the West are joining so many in Europe and other parts of the globe that have fallen away from what they once stood upon, the teachings of the Bible. Two, Second Thessalonians says there will be the revealing of the Antichrist, the last one. Based upon Second Thessalonians, I, I like to tell people, I don't think we're in the last segment of time yet, the half a time, but it's close. Will I see it in my lifetime? I don't know. What I do know is we're told that God must cut this last period of time short. You know why? Because it's a period of time during which hell is unleashed on earth. As Lucifer and his army seek to do battle with Jesus, a battle that will culminate in, guess what? Armageddon. I want to say this as, as plainly as I can, and then we'll read uh, verses uh, 40 to 45 of chapter 11. Here's what I want us to, to get. From a spiritual perspective, the physical, historical place called Armageddon, or Armageddon, 
symbolically represents the last battle that will take place between Lucifer and his angels and God and his Sabbath hosts. I like to think of it this way. The scripture utilizes three perspectives to help us understand the battle between God and Lucifer. So perspective one, Revelation chapter 12, we, we see the battle that took place in heaven between Lucifer and his angels and God before time. A battle won by God, a battle that gives God authority over all that Lucifer continues to do. Perspective two, the ongoing battle. Described throughout the pages of scripture, it's a battle for souls of men, mine included. Satan is defeated by God, and through God's victory, all who belong to Jesus are held onto by the Holy Spirit, but never lose sight of this. Under the authority of God, Lucifer does have the ability to seek to deceive to battle for our souls. This is the ongoing battle that Jesus allows Daniel to get a sneak peek into in chapter 11. Then perspective three, the last battle. The last battle to take place on planet earth is what we're looking at today, Armageddon. It's a spiritual battle. In other words, when the Bible talks about Armageddon, it's talking about that last moment in history when Lucifer and his army, under the delusion that they can still overcome God, they can't, will seek to do so, only to be bound in hell for eternity, cut off from the new earth that God will make on the day of resurrection. This is what we're being shown in Daniel, chapter 11, verses 40 to 45. Lord, I just ask your blessing as we read these verses. Give us your insight and give us your direction. Amen. Let us read the verses. Verses 40 to 45, chapter 11, begin as follows. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He will come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver, all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he will go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he will pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. That's a mouthful. So um, take it all in. How, how are we to understand this scripture? I don't want to oversimplify, but please do allow me to stay as simple as I can. I, I want to approach this simply because I've seen far too many commentaries complicate this section of scripture almost beyond comprehension. So simply. There are two perspectives that I find helpful in reading this, both of which are in agreement with the entirety of Scripture. First, when you read these words, we recognize that there, there is a physical dimension to them, a physical dimension that corresponds with Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. So remember, Jesus' disciples wanted to know when will the end come. So what does Jesus tell them? Matthew 24, 6 and 7, Jesus says, quote, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. This must take place, 
but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, end quote. Here's what I've noticed about this section of Daniel we're looking at as it relates to Armageddon. There's too many teachers and commentaries that take this section of scripture and treat the physical aspects of its war as primary. In doing so, they, they actually begin to name who, who is the king of the north, who's the king of the east, who's the king of the west. I've read commentaries that have China and Russia going to war with the U.S., Iran dropping nuclear bombs, North Korea seeking to wipe out the West and Europe, and you read all this and you know what it is? Scary, which does not agree with Jesus' words to his disciples. What did Jesus say? Quote, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. The end is not yet. When we read Daniel 11, 40 to 45, I believe there is a physical sense in which the end times will be marked by wars. Which wars? We, we don't know. Will there be catastrophic? Well, most war is. But it's not physical war that marks the end. It's spiritual war. It's the unseen war that will take place not on the physical dirt of Telmageddon or Armageddon, but that will take place on spiritual Megiddo. Think about this with me. I don't want you to miss this. What did we say were the two physical aspects of Armageddon that made it such an important place and an important site? So one, we said it was the only way through. If you want to move anyone or anything from east to west vis-a-vis, -vis, you have to go through what? Megiddo. What does Jesus tell us in John 14? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Armageddon. What do we find? Jesus as our way through. Two, physically we said that whoever was atop Megiddo had an advantage in battle. Why? Proximity. They are above their enemy. Apply that spiritually. Who is above or has authority over Lucifer? Jesus. When you put it together, what is Jesus telling Daniel? He's saying, Daniel, I, I'm taking you to the end, and I'm doing that for a reason. You're 70 years old. You're wondering if Israel will return to Israel. Let me answer you plainly. Yes. Physically, I'll bring them back home. But there's something more significant I want to show you. The hope that is in me is the hope that I want to burn bright inside of Israel. That Israel might act as a bearer of hope to the nations. The hope of the promise. The hope of the cross toward the goal of bringing spiritual Israel back home, home to the new earth that I will make. Now, this section of Daniel makes sense. It's not simply about physical warfare. It's about a spiritual war going on for the souls of mankind and the calling that Jesus has given to you and I, his church, to join him in his battle for souls. So let's close with a question. What, what does it have to do with you and me today? Because Armageddon sets in front of us a vivid picture of spiritual warfare, I really do believe it raises for each of us a couple of relevant questions. Question one, wh where are you right now today experiencing it? Where, where are you experiencing spiritual warfare in your life? Is it subtle? Is it substantive? Are you aware of it? Or are you just kind of going through life without paying attention to, to spiritually what's going on inside of you, inside of your family, inside of your marriage. I talked with a dad today, started off just pretty casual. 
how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Then it got more serious. This dad looks at me and he says, you know what? Our family hadn't been in church in a long time. I'll tell you why, sports. And he says, I feel, I really just feel disconnected. Well, what, what all of us have to know is this. Disconnected means what? Vulnerable. Do you not know that your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, who resists steadfast in the faith? So here's this dad, and he's saying to me, I, I think there's something. I mean, I'm, I'm living my life physically. We're, we're playing on, on fields. There's something spiritual not quite right yet. Where's it going on in your life? Question two, where do you see spiritual warfare happening in the lives of those you love? It could be family members. It could be friends. I just want you to become aware of it. Again, I was talking to the family here recently, and they, they talked to me about their son. He's going through depression. It's hard. But it's not just emotional. There's a spiritual dynamic to it. Where, where is that warfare in the lives of those you love? Question three, what does it mean for us to come under Jesus' authority? I have always thought that 1 John chapter 4, 1 and following are some of the most important words in the Bible. John has been talking about the battle. He's been talking about Antichrist. But he recognized something. Remember his words, just greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. What I know is this, that the battle is real. The spiritual battle going on inside of each of us. And we can't win it. But he has. And I will tell you that what Jesus is calling us to in Daniel chapter 11 is to very simply, but with a conviction of faith, come underneath his authority, the authority of the cross. Give ourselves to him and know that he and he alone is able to overcome. Well, that's it for this week. I'm going to continue to pray for you and your family. I ask that you would pray for mine. And I and I will be back next week. But in the meantime, my hope for you is that you have a God-sized week. <music>